0: Namo tasa pakawato arahato sama samputasa Namo tasa pakawato arahato sama samputasa Namo tasa pakawato arahato sama samputasa Putang damang sankam namasaoni So this uh winter retreat is half over. And uh, I think it's good to reflect on right speech. Um, you've taken the, the precept, so it's a time to kind of consider what what has your speech been the last two weeks. And this is what we do as speakers, we and samaneras, we we just had our Patimokha recitation this morning, uh, this afternoon, and before that. During the day, we try to consider where where have I erred in my uh, Vinaya discipline. Where could I be more careful? Where could I uh, work more strongly to be mindful of the kind of discipline that the Buddha encouraged me to, to live by? So same with anyone living here. You just consider what kind of speech you practice today. Just think about it. Is it, is it the kind of speech you're proud of? I just reading an interesting uh, take on uh, Hindu religion. Um, you know, Hinduism is a theistic religion, very much devotion to God, and the most confusing religion I've ever, ever seen. You can never understand quite what's going on there. But what they do is, like in, in, in Hinduism, they use uh, imagery of, of a deity, and they have many deities, and the idea in Hinduism is that God pervades all things. And so they have uh, the the deity that they their family might prefer, their village might prefer several deities, and they actually uh, offer puja to the deity every morning. They bathe it and they welcome it into the home. They give it uh, food. And to us, that might seem a bit, a bit bizarre, but the idea there is that you actually, that that the um, the imagery, the icon, the statue, is the god, so the god is present in your household. So if you had an image of, of, of Shiva and, and Parvati it's sort of transcendent marriage of the male feminine and then you offered rice and, and water and things like that, that the idea there is it brings forth a, a very kind of wholesome loving state of mind devotional and then if you've got Shiva and Parvati sitting with you right next to your breakfast table, maybe you'll insult your wife less Maybe you'll have better speech. And the same the same kind of icon reverence exists in in, in uh, or the Orthodox Church in from Byzantium, where the icon is is the saint, and and the icon's painter is is a very Agnes Cymatos, uh, sister is one of the foremost icon painters in North America, and uh, for her it's a total total meditation on the saint and then the painting and the prepare, the preparation of the canvas and the um, what do you call it with the egg that we make the, the, the paint and so on is, it, is, a, is a total meditative religious spiritual activity and so also in, in the Byzantine Church the Orthodox Church the the um, the icon is the saint so you have you have access to the saint but the saint is there not not just a kind of figurative thing and now again, that's not what Buddhism does. But imagine if you if you if you did that, it brings if you have the if you have the saint in your living room, perhaps it brings more care, more love, more tenderness, more devotion. Now, obviously, Theravada was probably very afraid of that. So the the sculptures of Theravada only the first imagery of Buddhism came maybe five hundred years later after the. The Parinibbana of the Buddha, probably from Greek influences or whatever, and there was probably a, a fear of that. And so, the Buddha's passing—in his passing—he said, "I don't leave you a person." Um, so, when we look at a Buddha image, it's not the person of the Buddha. He said, "I leave you the Dhamma Vinaya," and that's what we try to live by. You know, as in this monastery, that's that's our standard. The Dhamma Vinaya. its not—it's not a Western cultural standard. It's not even an an, an Asian cultural standard. It's a Dhamma Vinaya standard. It's a Buddhist standard. And that idea of of a god coming into your room and being present—you can—you can use that kind of idea. You say like, if Ajahn Chah was with you today and heard you speak today, would you have said what you said today? Or if Lompasemeda was there? Would you have done and said what you did do today? Would you have done that? Or if I was there? Is there a difference in your speech when I'm not around? uh, In the kitchen or whatever? Does your speech become more aggressive or coarse when I'm not around? And when you come to me, are you more gentle and kind and sweet? Does, Does your mind work that way? That would be hypocrisy, wouldn't it? That would be uh, a lack of such a so so something to do to bring to to you know, to constant monitor your own behavior your own speech. This is something I'd say if Mubal Chao was here, or Virdama was here, or or the Buddha. Bring the god into your into your living room. So our, our, you know, cultures have different ways of, of talking and, and, and dealing with disagreements. Um, say like uh, uh, an honor culture. An honor culture, to, you know, if you insult my uncle, you insult me. And I have to, I need revenge. Through the Balkans, through the Middle East, through many lands, through tribal cultures. Uh, revenge and and, uh, honor are big things. Uh, In a a confrontational culture you have to be straight. I have to tell you straight where it's at. That's like a hockey game. Hockey, you have to do that. You have to have an enforcer so that your big guy doesn't get hurt. That's confrontation culture. Very much uh, and there's a lot of that in the West, you confront someone with the truth. I'm going to tell you the truth, this is the way it is. But our culture is not confrontational, and neither is it is, is an honor culture, it's a Vinaya culture. I had a... my, my, uh, my father belonged to a, a, a Latvian... call it a fraternity, it's not a college fraternity, it's a lifetime fraternity. Uh, which came for the German model, and the Latvians adopted that model. And it was kind of a men's club. and honor was a big thing there. And um, they started up these fraternity clubs kind of thing in in, uh, in Canada. The kind of diaspora took up those old cultural habits. And these um, fraternities they were they were based usually on profession. Doctors and engineers, and one maybe artists, in another, whatever, and they had a lot of kind of male pride in them, and the way um, the the honor system worked was that if you were at a gathering and uh, someone, in, another man, insulted you, then you would you would uh, invite him to a duel, and. Uh, and the way the duel worked was, uh, this was not the German way, was dueling to the head. So the Germans would wear goggles. But the Latvians wore big uh, quivers, mat, uh, face guards, and they kept their chest open. Uh, and that's, that was still going on when I was a teenager. I remember, I didn't see it, but there was a, my dad told me about it, there was a doctor who got insulted by someone else. It was illegal, of course. And uh, he was invited to a duel, and they got a gymnasium somewhere, mm-hmm. and a doc- another doctor was a, was a, in attendance, and, and there was two seconds. Like in a duel, you have the second, and you have the duelers, and they went on each other. First one to strike, you stop, you change 15 times. And one of the guys was just bloody mad. <laughs> he was just blood all over the place. Sharp, flat swords, and this was 1955, 1960. And that's a, that's a culture. It's an honor culture. Uh, confrontation culture, again, a hockey game. That's another kind of culture. So there are different cultures, and you know, people might think, well, it's uh, I disagree with this culture, but the culture that we come from is, is coming from the Buddha. You know, it's not something that uh, Cha invented. It's given to us, and, and, you know, it's a culture of gentility. It's not a culture of just forcing your opinion into someone or, or confronting them and telling them something in a most inappropriate and unskillful time. There's skill involved, skill involved in saying things well. Right speech is very, very important, very important. And if one disagrees with that culture, fine, one goes somewhere else find a culture that works for you. So this monastery can only work if we agree on a certain moral principle, certain etiquette, certain aesthetic principles. It's not a hockey game. This is not this kind of a place. It's not a place where you just go um, telling people where they're at and so on. So it's good to, to kind of just go back and, and, and read what is what are some of the basics of, of our, our, our speech that the Buddha is asking us to consider? And there's many, but the one on, take this one. And how is one made pure in four ways by verbal action? There is the case where a certain person abandoning false speech, abstains from false speech. When he has been called to a town meeting a group meeting, a gathering of his relatives, his guild, or of the royalty, if he is asked as a witness, come and tell, good man, what you know. If he doesn't know, he says, I don't know. If he does know, he says, I know. If he hasn't seen, he says, I haven't seen. If he has seen, he says, I have seen. Thus, he doesn't consciously tell a lie for his own sake. For the sake of another, or for the sake of any reward. Abandoning false speech. He abstains from false speech. He speaks the truth, holds to the truth, is firm, reliable, no deceiver of the world. Abandoning divisive speech. He abstains from divisive speech. What he has heard here, he does not tell there. To break those apart from these people here. What he has heard there, he does not tell here to break these people apart from those people there, thus reconciling those who have broken apart. You get that? Thus reconciling those who have broken apart or cementing those who are united. He loves concord, delights in concord, enjoys concord, speaks things that create concord. You know, sometimes here I hear people um, criticizing the monks in this place and saying, oh, I know another tradition is much better than this. I don't like this tradition. Of course, I say, well, you know, you take my bread, you take my bed, and you use my requisites, and then you insult my family. I mean, what's that about? Why do people do that? thus reconciling those who have broken apart or cementing those who are united. He loves concord, delights in concord, enjoys concord, speaks things that create concord. So is your speech divisive? Does it create dissension? Does it create doubt? Or does it create concord? Is it beautiful? Abandoning abusive speech, he abstains from abusive speech. He speaks that are soothing to the ear that are affectionate, that go to the heart, that are polite, appealing and pleasing to people at large. Huh? He, he abstains from abusive speech, confrontation. Abandoning idle chatter, chatter he abstains from idle chatter. He speaks in season, speaks of what is factual, what is in accordance with the goal, the dhamma and the vinaya. He speaks words worth treasuring, seasonable, reasonable, circumscribed, connected with the goal. This is how one is made pure, in four ways, by ver- verbal action. So that's, the, that's one of the criteria that we, we judge our speech on. Now, a confrontation culture might say, no, that's not good. You know, we just have to say it straight, and in-your-face kind of stuff, but that's not our culture. We don't do that. We just don't, that's just not what we do. The idea of a, of a monastery is that we don't just follow our own habits, but we we take this teaching seriously, and we really use it as a mirror to see well how how am I acting? How am I speaking? Am I am I a lover of concord, or do I just sow dissension and distrust? Do I complain all the time, and so on and so forth? A reflection to... Two Rahula's, a very, very powerful sutta. Rahula is the Buddha's son, of course. And it's a long sutta. And he tells it to him real straight about this one section. In the same way, Rahula, bodily actions, verbal actions and mental actions are to be done with re- repeated reflection. Whenever you want to do a bodily action, you should reflect on it. This bodily action I want to do. Would it lead to self-affliction to the affliction of others or to both. And notice how the sutta is always saying that. It's saying, to my affliction and to the affliction of others. It's always pointing that. Would it be an unskillful bodily action with painful consequences, painful results? If, on reflection, you know that it would lead to self-affliction, to the affliction of others or to both, it would be an unskillful bodily action with painful consequences, painful results then any bodily action of that sort is absolutely unfit for you to do. But if on reflection you know that it would not cause affliction and so on, it would be a skillful bodily action with pleasant consequences, pleasant results, then any bodily action of that sort is fit for you to do. While you are doing a bodily action, you should reflect on it. This bodily action I am doing, So one is the preceding, before doing it, now he's doing it. Is it leading to self-affliction, to the affliction of others, or to both? Is it an unskillful bodily action with painful consequences, painful results? If on reflection you know that it is leading to self-affliction, to the affliction of others, or to both, you should give it up. But if on reflection you know that it is not, you may continue with it. Having done a bodily action, you should reflect on it. So the path, it's gone now, reflect on it. How was that? This bodily action I have done, did it lead to self-affliction, to the affliction of others, or to both? Was it an unskillful bodily action with painful consequences, painful results? If on reflection you know that it led to self-affliction, to the affliction of others, or to both, It was an unskillful bodily action with painful consequences, painful results, then you should confess it, reveal it, lay it open to the teacher or to the knowledgeable companion in the holy life. Having confessed it, you should exercise restraint in the future. But if on reflection you know that it did not lead to affliction, it was a skillful bodily action with pleasant consequences, pleasant results, then you should stay mentally refreshed and joyful Training day and night in skillful mental qualities. Whenever you want to do a verbal action, you should reflect on it. This verbal action I want to do, would it lead to self affliction, to the affliction of others, or to both? Would it be an unskillful verbal action with painful consequences, painful results? If on reflection you know that it would lead to self affliction, to the affliction of others, or to both, it would be an unskillful verbal action with painful consequences, painful results, then any verbal action of that sort is absolutely unfit for you to do. Don't do it. But if on reflection you know that it would not cause affliction, it would be a skillful verbal action with pleasant consequences, pleasant results, then any verbal action of that sort is fit for you to do. While you were doing a verbal action, you should reflect on it. This verbal action I am doing, is it leading to self-affliction? Is it leading to the affliction of others? Or to both? Is it an unskillful verbal action? With painful consequences, painful results. If on reflection, you know that it is leading to self-affliction, to the affliction of others, to both, you should give it up. But if on reflection you know that it's not, you may continue with it. Having done a verbal action, you should reflect on it. This verbal action I have done, did it lead to self-affliction, to the affliction of others, or to both? Was it an unskillful verbal action with painful consequences, painful results? If on reflection you know that it led to self-affliction, to the affliction of others or to both, it was an unskillful verbal action with painful consequences, painful results, then you should confess it, reveal it, lay it open to the teacher or to a knowledgeable companion in the holy life. Having confessed it, you should exercise restraint in the future. But if on reflection you know that it did not lead to affliction, it was a skillful verbal action with pleasant consequences and pleasant results, then you should stay mentally refreshed and joyful, turning day and night in skillful mental qualities. Does your speech keep you refreshed and joyful? Or does it just cause remorse and regret and doubt? And does your mind just get obsessed with the results of your speech? Whenever you want to do a mental action, even tougher, you should reflect on it. This mental action I want to do, would it lead to self-affliction? to the affliction of others, or to both. Would it be an unskillful mental action with painful consequences, painful results? If on reflection you know that it would lead to self-affliction, to the affliction of others, or to both, it would be an unskillful mental state, and mental action with painful consequences, painful results, then any mental action of that sort is absolutely unfit for you to do. But if on reflection you know that it would not cause affliction, it would be a skillful mental action with pleasant consequences, pleasant results, then any mental action of that sort is fit for you to do. While you are doing a mental action, you should reflect on it. This mental action I am doing, is it leading to self-affliction, to the affliction of others or to both? Is it an unskillful mental action with painful consequences, painful results? If on reflection you know that it is leading to self-affliction, to the affliction of others or are both, you should give it up. But if on reflection you know that it is not, you may continue with it. Having done a mental action, you should reflect on it. This mental action I have done, did it lead to self-affliction, to the affliction of others or to both? Was it an unskillful mental action with painful consequences, painful results? If on reflection you know that it led to self-affliction, to the affliction of others or are both, it was an unskillful mental action with painful consequences, painful results, then you should feel distressed, ashamed, and disgusted with it. Feeling distressed, ashamed, and disgusted with it, you should exercise restraint in the future. But if on reflection you know that it did not lead to affliction, it was a skillful mental action with pleasant consequences, pleasant results, then you should stay mentally refreshed and joyful. Training day and night in skillful mental qualities. So the, the Buddha's standards are very, very high. You know, it's not um, it's not an easy by no means is it easy, but that's why we're here. That's why we're here. We're here to practice, not to just indulge in views and opinions and dump them on people. Then, what to do if, if if there is if there is if there is conflict and and one feels the need to admonish? Well. I would say 90% of the time you don't need to admonish, because usually it's just, when one sees this one, someone has some kind of, um, some kind of chileser running, and they become very indignant, and then they, then they um, attack another person with their view and opinion, saying, you did this and you did that, and you did this and you did that, and that's, that's just aggression. That's just aggression. And then the person paints it up as, as blame, but that's just aggression. That's just coming from from bullying kind of mindset. So the Buddha gives us a way of admonishing. Well, bhikkhus, a bhikkhu who desires to admonish another should do so after investigating five conditions in himself. And after establishing five other conditions in himself, what are the five conditions we should which he should investigate in himself. Am I one who practices purity in bodily action, flawless and untainted? Am I one who practices purity in speech, flawless and untainted? Is the heart of goodwill, free from malice, established in me towards fellow affairs in the holy life? Am I or am I not one who has heard much, who bears in mind what he has heard, who stores up what he has heard, those teachings which are good alike in their beginning, middle and ending, proclaiming perfectly the spirit and the letter of the utterly purified holy life? Have such teachings been much heard by me, born in mind, practiced in speech, pondered in the heart, and rightly penetrated by insight? Are the patimokas, the rules of conduct for monks and nuns, in full, thoroughly learned by heart, well analyzed with thorough knowledge of their meanings, clearly divided sutta by sutta and known in minute detail by me? These five conditions must be investigated in himself. And what other five conditions must be established in himself? So that's, that's what you look at in your mind. So, just blurting something out, I don't think there's time to have considered that. It's a very considerable, you know, admonishment is a very serious thing. You don't know, just go up to someone at any old time, washing dishes, and just blurt out what you want to say. That's, that's barbaric. We don't do that here. This is civilized. You know, we have culture. It's not a hockey game. Do I speak at the right? So, and what other five conditions must be established in himself? Do I speak at the right time or not? There's a time and place to say things, appropriateness. Do I speak of facts or not? So you have to, you know, just to kind of accuse someone of something without, you know, just because of some whim. Do I speak of facts or not? Do I speak gently or harshly? Do I speak profitable words or not? Do I speak with a kindly heart? or inwardly malicious. Oh bhikkhus, these five conditions are to be investigated in himself and the latter five established in himself by a bhikkhu who desires to admonish another. So that's that's the recommendation to bhikkhus, but that's the way this monastery is trying to live. And what do we have otherwise? What, what do we have? Otherwise, it's, it's kind of sort of just Uncivilized. It's not beautiful, you know. This this is a beautiful life. We want to bring beauty in the way we relate. So when we have problems, we just have to walk away until we cool off, and then consider is it appropriate. And then we have to ask. We ask, like as say, uh Bante, I I I need I need to speak to you about something, and you know, I I well I'd like to I'd like to just look at an admonishment here. Kitten. Is this a good time for you? And then we have to make a and then we have to uh, the junior monk pays respects to the junior the senior monk, whatever, and then the discussion takes place. So, so when you do that, when you set up something quite formal, you can't just blurt something out and just to call another monk venerable. The Buddha encouraged us to do that. He said, "Don't use 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 bunte for a senior monk and use abuso for a junior monk." So the Buddha saw that that. In a man's community, men can be very aggressive and, and, and um, confrontational and so on. So he, he introduces a gentle, gentle way, uh, rather than just blurting out the first emotional response that comes. It takes restraint, it takes, it takes skill. And that's what makes a monastery beautiful. It's not, it's not the architecture. You have architecture, even in a beautiful meal, if the people are, are ugly with their speech, I mean... It's not nice. So we're trying to bring beauty and care into into things. Now, some people would say, well, that's not straight. You know, it's not talking straight. Well, it's okay. Go it somewhere else. This is the way the Buddha is asking us to, to, to practice. But what happens if someone then does lay into you? Well, there's the famous saw simile. Once monks, in the same sabati there was a lady of a household named Vedehika. This good report about Lady Vedehika had circulated. Lady Vedehika is gentle, Lady Vedehika is even-tempered, Lady Vedehika is calm. Now Lady Vedehika had a slave named Kali who was diligent, deft, and neat in her work. The thought occurred to Kali the slave. This good report about My Lady Vedahika has circulated. Lady Vedahika is amy-tempered, Lady Vedahika is gentle, Lady Vedahika is calm. Now, is anger present in My Lady without showing, or is it absent? Or is it just because my work is neat that the anger present in My Lady doesn't show? Why don't I test her? So Kali the slave got up after daybreak. Then Lady Vedahika said to her, Hey, Kali, "'Yes, madam.' "'Why did you get up after daybreak?' "'No reason, madam.' "'No reason, you wicked slave, and yet you get up after daybreak.' Angered and displeased, she scowled. Then the thought occurred to Kali, the slave, "'Anger is present in my lady without showing and not absent. "'And it's just because my work is neat "'that the anger present in my lady doesn't show. "'Why don't I test her some more?' So Kali, the slave, got up later in the day. Then Lady Vadehika said to her, hey, Kali, yes, madam, why did you get up later in the day? No reason, madam, no reason, you wicked slave, and yet you get up later in the day. Angered and displeased, she grumbled. Then the thought occurred to Kali, the slave, anger is present in my lady without showing and not absent, and it's just because my work is neat. That the anger present in my lady doesn't show. <laughs> She's asking for it. Why don't I test her some more? So, Kali the slave got up even later in the day. Then, Lady Vedahika said to her, Hey, Kali. Yes, madam. Why did you get up even later in the day? No reason, madam. No reason, you wicked slave, and yet you get up even later in the day. Angered and displeased, she grabbed hold of a rolling pin and gave her a whack over the head, cutting it open. (laughs) Then Collie the slave, with blood streaming from her cut-open head, went and denounced her mistress to the neighbors. See, ladies, the gentle one's handiwork. See, the even-tempered one's handiwork. See, the calm one's handiwork. How could she, angered and displeased with her only slave for getting up after daybreak, grab hold of a rolling pin and give her a whack over the head, cutting it open? After that, this evil report about Lady Vedahika circulated. Lady Vedahika is vicious. Lady Vedahika is foul-tempered. Lady Vedahika is violent. In the same way, monks, a monk may be ever so gentle, ever so even-tempered, ever so calm, as long as he is not touched by disagreeable aspects of speech. But it's when disagreeable aspects of speech touch him that he can be known from experience as gentle, even-tempered, and calm. I don't call a monk easy to admonish if he is easy to admonish and makes himself easy to admonish only by reason of robes, alms, food, lodging, and medicinal requisites for curing the sick. Why is that? Because if he doesn't get robes, alms, food, lodging, and medicinal requisites for curing the sick, then he isn't isn't easy to admonish and doesn't make himself easy to admonish. But if a monk is easy to admonish. And makes himself easy to admonish, purely out of esteem for the Dhamma, respect for the Dhamma, reverence for the Dhamma, then I call him easy to admonish. Thus monks, thinking we will be easy to admonish and make ourselves easy to admonish, purely out of esteem to the Dhamma, respect for the Dhamma, reverence for the Dhamma, that's how you should train yourselves. There are these five aspects of speech by which others may address you, timely or untimely, true or false, affectionate or harsh, beneficial or unbeneficial, with a mind of goodwill or with inner hate. Others may address you in a timely way or an untimely way. They may address you with what is true or what is false. They may address you with an affectionate way or harsh way. They may address you in a beneficial way or an unbeneficial way. They may address you with a mind of goodwill or with inner hate. In any event, you should train yourselves. Our minds will be unaffected, and we will say no evil words. We will remain sympathetic to that person's welfare with a mind of goodwill and with no inner hate. We will keep pervading him with an awareness imbued with goodwill and beginning with him, We will keep pervading the all-encompassing world with an awareness imbued with goodwill, abundant, expansive, immeasurable, free from hostility, free from ill-will. That's how you should train yourself. Monks, even if bandits were to carve you up savagely, limb by limb, with a two-handed saw, he among you who let his heart get angered even at that would not be doing my bidding. Even then you should train yourselves. Our minds will be unaffected and we will say no evil words. We will remain sympathetic with a mind of goodwill and with no inner hate. We will keep pervading these people with an awareness imbued with goodwill and beginning with them. We will keep pervading the all-encompassing world with an awareness imbued with goodwill. Abundant, expansive, immeasurable, free from hostility, free from ill-will. That's how you should train yourselves. So the Buddha gives us no excuse for anger. None at all, even even I mean it's impossible to do almost, doesn't it? Imagine having but that's what the Buddha asks us. He asks you know he says really, really he calls a number on this one. Monks, if you attend constantly to this admonition on the simile of the soul, do you see any aspects of speech slight or gross that you could not endure? No, Lord. Then attend constantly to this admonition on the simile of the soul. That will be for your long-term welfare and happiness. This is what the Blessed One said. Gratified, the monks delighted in the Blessed One's words. So he gives us this powerful simile so that when we, we hold grudges for minor matters, we say, well, wait a minute. Where am I at with this? We use it for reflection. Where am I at with this? Rather than holding on to our petty complaints and things like that. But what happens if there is someone who is just not willing to take it, Mahishmi? And the Buddha the Buddha has a limit. Then Kesi, the horse trainer, went to the Blessed One and on arrival, having bowed down, sat to one side. As he was sitting there, the Blessed One said to him, You Kesi, are a trained man, a trainer of tameable horses, and how do you train a tameable horse? Lord, I train a tameable horse sometimes with gentleness, sometimes with harshness, sometimes with both gentleness and harshness. And if a tameable horse doesn't submit either to a mild training or to a harsh training or to a mild and harsh training, Casey, what do you do? If a tameable horse doesn't submit either to a mild training or to a harsh training or to a mild and harsh training, Lord, then I kill it. Why is that? I think. Don't let this be a disgrace to my lineage of teachers. But the Blessed One, Lord, is the unexcelled, unexcelled trainer of tameable people. How do you train a tameable person? Casey, okay, I train a tameable person sometimes with gentleness, sometimes with harshness, sometimes with both gentleness and harshness. In using gentleness, I teach such is good bodily conduct, such is the result of good bodily conduct, such is good verbal conduct. Such is the result of good verbal conduct. Such is good mental conduct. Such is the result of good mental conduct. Such are the devas. Such are human beings. In using harshness, I teach. Such is bodily misconduct. Such is the result of bodily misconduct. Such is verbal misconduct. Such is the result of verbal misconduct. Such is mental misconduct. Such is the result of mental misconduct. Such is hell, Such is the animal womb. Such is the realm of the hungry shades. In using gentleness and harshness, I teach such is good bodily conduct. Such is the result of good bodily conduct. Such is bodily misconduct. Such is the result of bodily misconduct. Such is good verbal conduct. Such is the result of good verbal conduct. Such is verbal misconduct. Such is the result of verbal misconduct. Such is good mental conduct. Such is the result of good mental conduct. Such is mental misconduct. Such is the result of mental misconduct. Such are the devas. Such are human beings. Such is hell. Such is the animal womb. Such the realm of the hungry shades. And if a tameable person doesn't submit either to a mild training or to a harsh training, or to a mild and harsh training, what do you do? If a tameable person doesn't submit either to a mild training, or to a harsh training, or to a mild and harsh training, then I kill him, Kesa. But it's not proper for a Blessed One to take life. And yet the Blessed One just said, I kill him, Kesa. Is it true, Kesa, that it's not proper for a Tathagat to take life? It is true, Kesa, sorry, it is true, Kesa, that it's not proper for a Tathagata to take life. But if a tameable person doesn't submit either to a mild training or to a harsh training or to a mild and harsh training, then the Tathagata doesn't regard him as being worth speaking to or admonishing. His knowledgeable fellows in the holy life don't regard him as being worth speaking to or admonishing. This is what it means to be totally destroyed in the doctrine and discipline, when the Tathagata doesn't regard one as being worth speaking to or admonishing, and one's knowledgeable fellows in the holy life don't regard one as being worth speaking to or admonishing. Yes Lord, wouldn't one be totally destroyed if the Tathagata doesn't regard one as being or speaking to or admonishing, and one's knowledgeable fellows in the holy life don't regard one as being or speaking to or admonishing. Magnificent Lord, magnificent, just as if he were to place upright what was overturned, to reveal what was hidden, to show the way to one who was lost, or to carry a lamp into the dark so that those with eyes could see forms. In the same way, as the Blessed One, through many lines of reasoning, made the Dhamma clear? I go to the Blessed One for refuge, to the Dhamma and to the community of monks. May the Blessed One remember me as a lay follower who has gone to him for refuge from this day forward for life. So the interesting where the worst thing you can have in a Sangha is with no one... No one wants to admonish you anymore. No one wants to talk to you. That's death. Interesting. You've lost all your friends. Sad. So admonishment is is, is important. It's important. It's important to, to be able to receive admonishment. It's important to be able to offer it. But admonishment is an offering of kindness. You know, an offering, an offering. You know. I think you've got a blind spot there, mate. You know, and, and you know, I think maybe if you look at that, you know, your practices might get better. That's It's coming from kindness and gentleness and, and generosity. It's not coming from uh, a bad hair day, just anger or, 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 or just kind of bullying aggressive tendency. That's not admonishment. It's a hockey game. So, bring beauty, beauty into speech, bring gentleness, kindness, and men need that, men need that. You know, in a monastery we, 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 don't, have, we don't have a wife, we don't have children, and men, when they don't have um, someone to care for like that, someone to protect, they can become very brutal, just kind of brutal in their, in their confrontation, and their energy. And the, the brilliance of the Buddha, the Buddha's um, Dhamma Vinaya, well he introduced this kind of, he was able to create a culture, a male culture, because you know, the communities were separate, female too, but I only know male, a male culture which was gentle. And there were no women around and no children to care for. That's, that's quite extraordinary. When you look at what, what men have per- perpetrated in wars and brutality to women and things like that, we can be a pretty, pretty horrible part of our species, men. And yet we also, as men, we have, we have strength, we have virility, we have that kind of energy which can be channeled towards the spiritual life. So someone like Lompocca was the exemplar in that way. He's tough. He's tough. Lompoleum tough. They're not wimps. It's strong, strong practices. But they're also very beautiful. They're beautiful in their behavior and the way they move. And they're coarse. Their speech is timely. They're happy. They're happy people. I'll leave that for reflection. <coughs>